across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We are having virtual cabinet meetings. We could be having an e-Prime Minister's question soon. And we are midway through the second week of our virtual lockdown. This morning, we're going to take the temperature of the nation's media to discover whether it is helping the cause or hindering it. Don't get me wrong, uh, obviously I'm part of the media and the media is a very important part of the questioning of the government. But with each daily briefing, it seems we're going over the same old ground about whether we should have been more prepared, whether the government could have done more to stock up on things they weren't where they had to stock up on and whether other countries are doing things better than we are. You'd have to ask whether there's much point anymore to these briefings. We'll be asking John Rensel from The Independent what he's making of the media, not exactly covering themselves in glory here. And of course, I don't mean John Rensel, I just mean certain parts of the media, certain people who keep asking questions as if it's all about them. Coming up, we'll be hearing from Labour's Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth, music promoter and nightclub owner Donald McLeod up in Scotland and Grammy Award-winning record producer Steve Lillywhite, who's checking in from Jakarta in Indonesia. But of course, we want to hear from you as well, the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham as we continue our quest to find out what's going on in the shops out there and in the streets of your towns, your villages and your cities. Call us please with your stories, your questions and your experiences. 0344 499 For our homeschooling section today, we are taking a trip to the countryside to find out what you can do to spot both the wild and the tame life out there. A bit of twitching of course will be uh, in order as well. And we'll be heading over to California to catch up with Lockdown LaDonna Harvey, uh, 0344 499 And as usual, uh, we are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. Get on it right now, subscribe to it and you will get a list of all of the great things that you can see on there uh, as we put them out. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. A very good Wednesday morning to you. It is April the 1st. You will not be hearing any April Fool's jokes or pranks on this show because, quite frankly, I've never liked them. I never did like them when we used to do them in newspapers when I worked on them, and I never did like putting out false stories uh, just to see if you can catch people out. It's all rather infantile, so we won't be doing it anyway, and we're certainly not going to do it in this particular moment because we are in the midst, ladies and gentlemen, uh, of a pandemic. So why would you want to joke about that? Let's talk to John Rental instead and get a, fine, get a fine view of what's going on out there in the big wide world of the media. John, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. It's I suddenly... your alternative to an April Fool's joke. Very good. <laughs> very, yes, well, exactly right. I mean, there's so much fake news out there that, uh, you know, adding some more of it was not really going to be very helpful, I don't think. Couldn't agree more. But I was thinking last night, you know, we haven't spoken to John Rental for quite a long time because we've been so kind of caught up with the whole business of the coronavirus story that we speak to experts, we speak to scientists, we speak to politicians, we speak to virologists. I never knew there were so many virologists in the world until, Indeed. you know, the last two weeks. But I think the media is an important story in this whole uh, situation because it has become very much part of the government strategy and maybe always was part of the government strategy. And I'm not entirely sure that the media or certain sections of the media are being particularly helpful. Well, I think that's unfair. I think, uh, I think, the, the, I think my fellow journalists just, uh, like the government, have been struggling to come to terms with uh, a completely unprecedented event and I think uh, I think on the whole the media has been uh, quite responsible and uh, you know thinking out as much of the truth as, as possible and trying to convey that to uh, the public in a sort of non-sensationalist way I think uh, I think the British media has actually performed uh, performed extremely well yeah I'm not suggesting they're being irresponsible but I just wonder what the efficacy is of having um, a, a sort of a press conference in which the questions are largely about what the government hasn't done and what it should yeah. have done and wouldn't it be better if it did this from people <laughs> who are not actually experts in the field I fully accept that but I mean on the other hand those are natural questions that the, that the public do want asked I think to a certain extent. Well, I you see say... this is where I differ from you because the, because the reaction I'm getting and I know that you can always tell me that the, the reaction on social media isn't always the, 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 the truth of what's out there but I mean yeah. this, the questions are becoming very similar sounding every single day now from the likes of yeah. Robert Peston and, and Laura Koonsberg and I'm not singling them out it just happens that they normally get to ask a question they're more or less asking yeah. the same kind of question day after day after day which which it appears, and on the face of it anyway, to be all about them trying to say something to the government rather than trying to get an answer. Well, trying to, trying to probe why the government um, doesn't have enough uh, tests, 
doesn't have enough uh, uh, protective equipment uh, and why the government didn't act earlier. I mean, all those are, um, you're quite right. I mean, in a sense, there's, you know, those are questions for um, some kind of public inquiry in the in the future, which I'm not in favour of, by the way. But yes. I think, uh, you know, I, you're, you're quite right. There is no point in asking those questions, except that, I mean, it does, it, it, it might just uh, goad the government into into doing more than it would than it would otherwise. I mean, I don't think you can you can criticise journalists for not asking those questions, but maybe they've asked them too often. And I would say uh, very gently to to my colleagues that I think one question per journalist is uh, ought to be the uh, the, the, the limit. In well, those, well, let me uh, put this scenario to you: if it was me, because this is the, the attitude that I've taken throughout this whole situation is that the people in uh, the country are not interested in point scoring. They're not really interested in taking ministers down or getting ministers fired. They're interested in information. And what they want yeah. from a journalist is to is to extract information from these officials so that it can be used in some way. Because, for example, you know, we, we talked yesterday about how there's a, there's a sort of disparity between the way that some police officers are operating and some police forces are operating. Nobody's quite yeah. sure what the rules are on certain things. You know, I would be like... I, if I was to ask, for example, yesterday Michael Gove a question, I would have said to him... What is it that we can say to people who want to go out and buy goods in a shop? What is an yeah. essential? What is an, an essential and a non-essential item? Can you please, you yeah. know, clarify that? You know, that kind of thing. Rather than, don't you think that back in January you should have bought more beds? You know. Yeah, I mean, but to be fair, Mike, those that, that, those questions have been asked as well, and and there was some some confusion in some of the ministerial answers about uh, how often. Uh, people are expected to be allowed out to, to go shopping. I mean, mm. I think Grant Shapps said, you know, you shouldn't really go out uh, to the shops more than once a week right. to stock up on food. But the problem with uh, that, of course, is that people go out once a week and then they are only allowed to buy one uh, one bottle of milk, basically. Well, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think that, that wasn't practical and I think that has actually been um, slightly reversed by, by other ministers. I mean, I think those are important questions to ask, but I, I do think they have been... They have been asked. I think there is a certain amount of confusion and inconsistency in some of the answers. That is, that, that is part of the problem. But I mean, I think that's partly because everything is so unfamiliar and it's been happening so fast um, that everybody is partly making it up as, as they go along and trying to use common sense. And sometimes the common sense answer isn't the, uh, isn't the right one. No, that's right. But when you see headlines like fixed testing fiasco now on the front page of the Daily Mail, well, first yeah. of all, I'm not sure that it is a testing fiasco, um, and yeah. I'm not sure what they mean by fixing it, you know? And it's well, like, that sort of headline, I would have to say, is, it strikes me as a little bit sensationalist. That did, that did occur to me, and I did think that, you know, it's all very well for Jeremy Hunt, um, the former health secretary, to demand that we have mass community testing. Mm. Uh, but if we don't actually have the tests, then, you know, you might as well call for pie in the sky. Yes. Um, also, so I had this conversation with Jonathan Ashworth last week who was going on about how we should be testing more people like they are in Germany. And I said, well, what do you want yeah. to test them for? And he yeah. said, well, I want to test them to see if they've got the, the virus. I said, OK, well, if you test me today and I haven't got it, I might get it tomorrow. So the test yeah. is virtually worthless. And he was kind well, of speechless at that point. <laughs> well, you do have to do it. This is why you need an absolutely vast capacity for testing. And Germany, I think, is the only country that has that kind of capacity. Um, well, also, the Germans yeah. like to uh, be told how to how to behave in these situations, and we probably don't. You know, I mean, I, I, I can say that with some firmness, because the person who is the mother of my children is partly German, and she's very yeah. keen on rules, and they like to follow rules, and they like to have regulations. And the yeah. problem is, is when you say testing regularly, or, or, or yeah. kind of continuously, you can't test everybody every day, can you? No, uh, not even in Germany. No. Uh, so yes, you're you're absolutely right. But you know there there do have to be other policies in place, and that's what the lockdown is all about. And mm. um, you know, even in in Germany, I think uh, you know you you're still required to stay at home. It's just that they've got more. They've got more tests. Yes, of, uh, and I think I, mean, I think we are all agreed that the, the social distancing, which we mostly are now practicing quite well, um, yeah. is is the only way to make sure that that. It doesn't spread as quickly as it otherwise would. However, exactly. however, I also go with the government's earlier assertions a month or so ago, uh, which were that basically everyone will get this at some point or other. Well, we don't know about that because we, there's an awful lot about the, the virus that we don't know. Yeah. I mean, it may it, it may uh, die out. It may lose its uh, its potency. Who knows? I mean, it, you know, other similar viruses have just sort of petered out. 
um, and nobody really knows why. Mm. Um, and also, we don't we don't know how many people have had it without symptoms. Uh, I mean, there's an awful lot we we don't know, so we we can't really predict how the how the thing is going to go. But I mean, certainly one of the scenarios is that everybody is likely to, or well, nearly everybody is likely to get it at some point. Yes, uh, but we but, just but we may all get it. Yeah, we may all get it in a very different way. I mean, I spoke to Alex Phillips yesterday, the former Brexit Party MEP, who's had that thing that a lot of people are now reporting today: uh, the the loss of uh, sense of smell and taste. Which doesn't yes. affect everybody, um, but would appear to be possibly one of the uh, the symptoms. I also spoke to a guy yesterday who had been on holiday in Vietnam with a bunch of his friends, uh, all of whom were tested positive for the virus, but none of whom showed any symptoms. Really? Yeah. That's, yeah, you see, that that's precisely it. I mean, we just don't know. And the, and the problem with the loss of sense of smell and taste is that's a very common symptom for for all sorts of uh, infections. I yeah. mean, that's just not not particular to coronavirus. I'm right. The corona, I mean, I'm, not, I'm no medical expert either, but I mean, uh, the impression I get is that it's the fever that is the most telling thing. Yes. Uh, and, and, this, and this persistent cough. Yes. It's although, you know, when the Prime Minister went on, uh, on on video a couple of times to talk about his mild symptoms, he didn't think that. Was, I mean, he said he got a persistent cough, but there's no no sign of it on the on the video. Right. Well, that's the thing. Um. Um. And, and I don't know again whether it's a. You have to kind of almost shoehorn out of these people what is a persistent cough. And I would be yeah. more specific if I was in that daily briefing, saying, "Can you please tell us what that means?" You know, the words like yeah. essential persistent, you know, key. Yeah. These are all really important questions. Yes, you're absolutely right, Mike. I think we should put you in the uh, put you in the video box for the. <laughs> well, Charlotte Ivers is our political correspondent. She got a question. I will tell you what was really awful, which I witnessed yesterday, and I and I know now how some young women feel in this world in which we live. She got terrible abuse because she asked a question about whether there would be taxes going up after the uh, you know the pandemic was over. It's a perfectly decent yes. question, but the but... amount of vitriol that she got from including Andrew Neil, by the way, because yes. I believe because she's a young woman, I think that's disgraceful. Yes. I think that's right. What was also notable about it was that uh, Michael Gunn didn't answer it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the other problem. I mean, I'm wondering, and you may say that I shouldn't walk away from this and you, I might have gone completely mad, but is there any point in having these daily briefings anymore? No, of course there is. Of course there is. I mean, I just I just wish that, you know, uh, journalists would show a bit more discipline in asking uh, single questions. I mean, yeah. Charlotte, Charlotte asked two very good questions, but, I mean, if you ask two questions... That gives the minister the, the, the well. You see, yeah, you see, I never do that. I never. I, I learned very early on in my journalistic career. If you give people too many points to answer, they won't yeah. answer the one they don't want to answer. Exactly. So you know, I do. I do think that would that would be the single single change I would uh, I would advocate. But I, no, I do think those are. I think they're very important. Uh, events because it does give you the chance yes. to put questions to, to people and it does give them, it gives those medical, you know, the, 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 the chief medical officers and the scientific advisors it gives them the chance to get some uh, public uh, right. health messages. Okay, across. well how about this then, let me, let, me, let me come at you with a second suggestion, why don't we revolve the questioners once in a while so that it's not all the same people, so that basically, I mean I had a suggestion from somebody on Twitter the other day, why don't they get some regional journalists to ask some questions because they might be actually more interesting uh, and more interested in one particular arena or one particular area, because remember Tony Blair um, back in the day used to sort of veer away from Fleet Street every now and again and go and yeah. talk to magazine editors and go and talk to local newspapers. So it doesn't appear to be just a kind of Westminster bubble concentric circle. Yes, I think. I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, to be to be fair, my colleagues in the lobby are um, are. Uh, drawing up a rotor to try and um, make sure that uh, a, a wider group of people gets to ask questions, but um, I'm not uh, I'm not privy to, to no. discussions. But I'm hoping that I mean I do think you're you're absolutely right. I do think there should be as wide as a, a possible selection yeah. of. Uh, and can we and can we can we remove that bloke from the Daily Mail who keeps? I've got nothing against the Daily Mail, but you know the guy that comes out with this is a shocking <laughs> rise in the death rate. It's like you're not writing for the paper, mate. You're asking the question to Michael Gove. You know. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a bit of uh, a bit of plain language. Bit of hyperbole. Well, listen, I'm the master of plain language. I just, I just I'm gl really glad we spoke about this because I just wanted to get it sort of on the record, if you like. That I just think that you know I'm not criticising my my colleagues in the media. I just think they need to be careful that they don't make it all about them and that they actually serve the public, which is what their job is to do. Couldn't agree more. Brilliant.
John, thank you very much indeed. John Rental, a very sensible man, agrees with me, thinks Charlotte Ivers' questions yesterday were good, uh, and better than good, actually, and she will probably be asking some more questions as well. But if you want to know something from a government minister, why don't you tell me what it is that you want them to answer? Because I can tell you right now, I can give you five questions that nobody's asked them that we need to figure out. For example, I've seen another video this morning of a ludicrous situation. I'm not quite sure exactly where it is. Five police officers turning up to the front door of a guy who is apparently accused of a public order uh, offence by filming a traffic warden, right? Five of them. Now, that is over-the-top, nonsensical and unnecessary. And if I was to be able to put a question to the Home Office Minister or to the Home Secretary or to Michael Gove or to any of the senior members of the Cabinet, I would say... Can you please issue a dictum as to what it is the police are supposed to be doing right now? 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your calls. We'll talk to John Ashworth, Ashworth uh, from the Labour Party as well. This is Talk Radio. We're live streaming. Get on it right now. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Coming up a little bit later on in this hour, we're going to be talking to Dr Philip Camilleri, Director of Urological Cancers at Genesis Care UK. He's going to be telling us about cancer treatments and how they're being affected currently by the coronavirus problem. We also spoke earlier to Jonathan Ashworth, Shadow Health Secretary, uh, and we started to talk about what's going on with the testing situation. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's big questions about testing now, isn't there? Because Germany appears to be testing around 500,000 a week. Yeah. And we're still not at the 70,000 a week that uh, ministers promised us about, well, 20 days ago. Yeah. Now, there's been some talk in the last 24 hours that the reason we're not testing is because there's been a shortage of the chemicals, the, the reagents, as they're, as they're called by the experts. That's mm. what the government said. But then last night, the chemicals industry came out and said, look, we, we will make you these chemicals, but you've not been in touch with us. Just tell us yeah. what you need. So I, I hope that ministers are getting together with manufacturing and the chemicals industry, ASAP, to sort of work out what we can do on this, because we clearly need to be ramping up the testing, don't we? I think so, yeah. But also, uh, as, as the chief medical officer said in the past, it's important to know not so much whether somebody is positive at the moment, but whether they've actually had it. They seem to be more keen on that particular test because it's more, it seems to be more valuable. Well, I would say, I mean, if you look at what's happening across the world, and the World Health Organization recommend this, the way to get a grip of this, to really beat this virus, is to, is to test people and to trace everyone who's been in contact with someone who's had, who's had the virus and get them to isolate. That's what will break the chains of transmission. And you've got now Jeremy Hunt, who was, of course, the health secretary uh, in the cabinet for many years, saying that as well. So if we can ramp up this testing, get it out into the community and do the other test, which is the new test, which will be online soon, uh, on stream soon, which tests whether you've had it, we can really begin to get the, the control yeah. of this virus. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've been just uh, talking to lots of people, obviously, as we do on, on the radio, people phoning in. Uh, we've had callers who have been in Southeast Asia, um, many of whom got the, uh, the test while they were in Vietnam, for, for instance, and they were saying that three for, for three weeks they were basically told that they had to stay indoors and they had to self-isolate. But they never actually had any symptoms, even though they tested positive. So there's a lot of differences in terms of how some people are getting this. There's huge differences across the world. So in uh, uh, Southeast Asian countries, because they were so hit by the SARS pandemic, yeah. uh, they have taken this really, really seriously and they've really put in place very stringent measures to get people to isolate, get people to quarantine. And it looks like South Korea have been really su successful in this, for example. We have, we in, uh, in Europe have taken a slightly different approach and you know, not everyone is convinced that... Um, we've done the right thing. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, again, has been saying we should be doing what they've been doing in China and South Korea. Um, we will see. I mean, we all want this effort to beat this virus to succeed, obviously, don't we? But, you know, there are big questions about who has got the right approach yeah, exactly. for the, uh, those in the Asian countries. Well, quite. And also, with China currently being accused of lying about the numbers and lying about how they actually dealt with it and, and possibly now lying about how they have dealt with it and how it's, how it's kind of coming out of, 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 uh, of, of a bad place, it's difficult to know. What do you make of those uh, accusations? Well, I mean, we've, uh, I think it's, there's a lot of um, uh, suspicion and mistrust of China, isn't there, in all of this? Uh, and we'll have to see what happens in the next couple of days with their numbers. But uh, but I think people uh, can be generally trust South Korea. They're a, 
they're a liberal democratic uh, 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 country, and and their their numbers have been they've been very good at suppressing suppressing this virus, and they've uh, they've had uh, very low death rates compared to many of the countries in Europe. So, and you know they've really really invested in testing. They're testing, I think, uh, on a per, per capita basis more than other countries. Mm. They, they really think that is the way in which you, you beat this virus. Do you think once this is all over, the, the world should consider some kind of sanction against China? Well, I mean, when, uh, well, I, I don't know about that, but I mean, obviously, if you think it began in China, we've got to have questions about how it began and uh, what went on there. And I think that the priority for the world, though, at the moment, has got to be the development of a vaccine. And when that vaccine emerges, making sure it's distributed across the world quickly, uh, uh, because there is no escape from this unless we get vaccinated. I mean, we could, some are speculating we could go through cycles of lockdowns. You know, we'd lock down for a couple of months or so, come out, then lock down again until a vaccine emerges. So when the vaccine is available, we've got to make sure that that is distributed across the world. Uh, any intelligence up, uh, a heads up on the Saturday result? Oh, well, I presume it'll be Keir Starmer. He's the bookie's favourite. And um, but you know, you never know in life, do you? Will you still be health secretary then? Do you think? Oh, I wish I was the health secretary. I'm under the shadow. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see. I okay. Mean, well, well, maybe we'll talk to you next week, and maybe you'll still be shadow health secretary. We should see. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Cheers. Take care. Jonathan Ashworth there uh, talking to us about the testing scenario, which seems to be the, the sort of the point of argument today. We seem to be having all of these conversations pretty much every single day, and it changes from time to time. We want to talk to the real people of the country out there uh, with the real questions that they want to ask uh, various ministers and shadow ministers. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to Pat, who's in Stepney. Hello, Pat. Oh, good, good morning, Mike. Oh, I haven't spoke to you for a long time. No, we haven't. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, all right. Now... Um, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people see Dad's Army, you know, the original oh, yeah. series on television. Well, the police are behaving like a load of Walden Hodges is. They really are, aren't they? I mean, you know, it's, we should make the point that not all of them are, but some of them are. No, not all of them. That's why I said to your producer, I said not all of them, but there's some of them. Yes. And, and, and basically, that's what happens when you give the police more like powers that they're not used to. Yes, and I think the problem is partly, and I spoke to the Police Federation about this yesterday, that they're not being told the police, so they're kind of having to interpret the rules themselves, and that's never a good thing. No. What, what should happen? I mean, um, if, you, if the police see, like, say, you're walking through a park... Yeah. And you see, like, uh, a, a load of people sitting around having a, a, a drink up or a laugh. Or so you can split it up and, uh, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Yes. You know, or, or, or sort of like a, a gang of kids hanging around, like, all together, like, you know, laughing and on their bikes or, so, you know, sort of sitting sort of by their bikes. Mm. Yeah, come on, lads, come on, you know, that sort of thing. Yes. Dispersing but, groups of people is a legitimate police activity. There's no question about that. In, in times like this, yeah. I mean, um, uh, as I say, but to, to pursue motorists and, and, and like, um, people just going by their business if they're keeping their distance and, pers and looking at the, the, uh, the rules laid down, yeah. they, they should just walk by you and not say a word. I mean, I... I was walk I was running around. Well, running. I was walking around my local park, which there was a few people in it. it wasn't empty. There was a few people. Well, in your like, when was this? Yesterday, but if they were all observing, like you yeah, know, but the pubs are meant to be shut though. Pat. No, no park. Oh, park. Sorry, I thought you said pub. Yeah, pub. <laughs> oh well, as long as the park's open, they're supposed to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if you're allowed to walk your dog, surely you should be able to go to the park to do that. Right, but I was walking around, and I was like, I saw the landlord of a pub that's closed and he was having a run so I was keeping my distance from him as he was sort of jogging but he was back jogging about as fast as I was walking. Yes. So I said, like, when's the pub, how are you doing those things holding up? And he said, yeah, not too bad, like, right. you know, and we was discussing about whether he's applied for the, you know, for his grant and all this sort of thing. Yes. And, and I, I happened to see... a. a like uh, two police officers, one male, one female, walking together. Right. You know, like literally walking next side to by each other. Side. Yes. Right. Which is not supposed to happen. So they're they're not even 
and I didn't say anything, but they're not even uh, pursuing their own, and they didn't have no masks on. I, they're not even pursuing their own or, or agenda. No, you're absolutely right, Pat. Thanks very much indeed for your point. Because here's the thing. If the police are going to uh, intimidate people and tell them that they can't do certain things, even though the law does not say that that thing that they want to do is illegal, then that's wrong, isn't it? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And we are, of course, live streaming on YouTube, on Twitter and on Facebook. So go and watch us now as well as listening to us. Uh, you may think that that's kind of a bizarre thing to do with radio, but actually it works rather well. And lots more people are doing it now uh, than were doing it uh, yesterday and the day before that. But let's talk to Dr Philip Lee, former Justice Minister, former Tory MP. Uh, he's been tweeting quite a lot about COVID-19. Uh, and one of his tweets says this from yesterday. We could have been ready for COVID-19. That's what makes me so angry about the government's mishandling of this pandemic. Dr Philip, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, what do you mean by that? Why, how could we have been better prepared, do you think? Well, I, in that Twitter thread that you've just quoted from, I, I, it said, it, I point out that I participated in the last um, pandemic exercise the government ran in late 2016. Mm. And that exercise um, had a virus that we could treat and we could vaccinate against. Um, and, and yet, despite those having those two sort of weapons, so to speak, to fight the infection in that exercise, um, it still was quite a sobering experience, the impact yes. that a pandemic would have on the country. So I guess my point is, is that if, if a cabinet office minister sort of took the file down in January 2020 from that exercise and saw the impact, the significant impact it had on British sort of economy, society, public services. It was a pretty odd decision to then be confronted by a virus that we couldn't treat, that we didn't have a vaccination against, and that it was well documented in January was causing significant respiratory pathology in patients. To not then have pressed the button on testing and on ventilating equipment and the like I, I, I struggle to understand why those decisions were not made. Yes, I mean, I suppose from watching what they've done, they appear to have been more concerned about the kind of um, rolling out, if you like, of the restrictions that they wanted to put on the general public and the way that they wanted to sort of yeah. flatten, if you like, this bell curve that everybody talks about so that there's no yeah. big rush to, to hospitals. For me, that seems to have worked OK. Well, let's wait and see. I mean, whether whether the, the current government's uh, approach has, our government's approach has made a positive difference or not compared to, say, the German government or the South Korean government, who've clearly taken a different approach from the outset, I think time will tell. Yeah. My broader point in terms of the, the, is that we were ahead of the curve in having these exercises in the first place. I thought the exercise itself was comprehensive. I was impressed. Uh, and then the report was not published. 
but but the the chief medical officer at the time is on record as saying that we had discovered that there would be problem with the disposal of bodies, yeah. that there were problems with regards to ventilating equipment in hospitals. So we knew these things. And my point is is that we could have made a decision off the back of that exercise to buy fifty thousand ventilator machines then and store them in a warehouse. Yeah. Now people say to me, okay, well that's about half a billion quid, five hundred million pounds. That's a lot of money, Philip. Well, actually, is it? It's about a day and a half of NHS expenditure. Yes, so and it doesn't not, seem like much money now because now we're talking about just basically, absolutely. you know, if you want yeah. f- to find five billion quid for something, you can find yeah. it. But you know as well as I do, Philip, that back in the day when Brexit was all, all ongoing and everyone was absolutely, yeah. you know, completely and utterly yeah. flummoxed by what to do next, if you'd suddenly suggested spending half a billion quid or, uh, or yeah. at random uh, on something which was not necessarily required at the time, if, even yeah. the Chancellor would have probably said no. Philip Hammond would have probably said no way. Well, I think you make a fair point, and I think that actually speaks to the problem we have with the quality of our governance, that we don't actually take longer-term views, and perhaps it's like an insurance policy, Mm. isn't it? You hope you're never going to use it, but it's there just in case. Yes. The issue for me, though, is is that this is a publicly documented Tier 1 risk to national security, okay? Everybody can read this document. It's online. It's a Tier 1 risk, so therefore you would think that we would have built-in capacity to draw upon if it was to happen. And we had time. I mean, the Chinese sat on it for longer than they should have done. We Mm. know this. But we still, um, in January, could see, okay, if this comes our way, this is going to cause X, Y, and Z. And and the testing particularly frustrates me because, you know, you can only eradicate a virus if you know where it is. Okay, So you need to know who's carrying it, isolate them, treat them if necessary. You need to... I mean, arguably, we should have contact traced every single patient passenger manifest of planes coming out of China since Christmas. Yes. We didn't do this. We didn't shut down Cheltenham Festival. We didn't shut down. We didn't stop Atletico Madrid fans turning up for the game in Liverpool. Yeah. If you think about it, we, made, we didn't really, our government didn't make a concerted effort to contain this at the outset. It worked on the basis of, okay, it's coming. We need to mitigate the impact. And that, I think, I find very, very troubling because our exercise in 2016 told us that this would be potentially an overwhelming situation. Yeah. How did that? Doing... How did that exercise end? As a matter of interest, just I mean, what was the kind of the oh, worst I mean, worst I mean, point my, of it? Well, my my role in it was I was I was basically participating as a justice minister on behalf of the criminal justice system, right. the impact the pandemic could have, and you're seeing this with the release of women who are pregnant. Um, etc. We knew it would have an impact upon what are essentially in health terms quite a vulnerable group prisoners. So we knew this. That was where my responsibility sort of stopped. The actual responsibility for it and how it finished and the report being drawn up was, as I recall, the Cabinet Office, which is the department that oversees all of government. Now, why it was decided not to publish or not, you'd have to ask the person at the time who made that decision why they didn't act on the concerns that we that had been uncovered by the exercise i don't know you'd have to ask the people responsible for, for that but all i do know is, is if i'd been the cabinet office minister in january in 2020 and i'd taken cygnus report off the bookshelf and i presume someone did this mm. i would have read that and thought hang on a minute they had this virus we could treat we could vaccinate against this one's pretty nasty we can't treat we can't vaccinate we need to we're going to have to act early because with pandemics mike it's hard and fast early yeah not putting off the difficulty of shutting down and social distancing and everything else if we've gone in hard there's there's an element of benefit hindsight if you go in hide and can contain this we wouldn't have got to the social distancing stage but even if we'd got to the social distancing stage we would have made the decision earlier because we would have been ahead of the curve and that, I think, well, look, we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out in Germany and South Korea. But yes. my gut tells me those countries are going to do a better job of controlling this first wave and also the likelihood of a second wave if this virus is seasonal. I may be wrong. Yeah. I personally want as few people as possible to die. I want us to all step up and do all that's necessary from now on in to make this... Yeah. And I, I can't it, imagine that anybody else would have any other uh, it, wish to, to have the, any other outcome. But the only country we could look to to see about going in hard, really, though, especially, is China. And the trouble is we can't necessarily trust everything that China did. They virtually locked well, Wuhan down yeah. and didn't let anybody out on the street at allegedly, all. Um, you know. I mean, let's well, be honest. I mean, we, 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 you know, when this virus appeared or not in the... Uh, it, 
in humans is still open to debate. Yeah. I've seen some reports mid-November is the most likely sort of date, in which case, how come this was not being reported before Christmas? Yeah. How come that poor doctor who started to flag in an online forum, who was actually allegedly arrested and tortured, who subsequently died? I mean, the, the reality is that the Chinese didn't report it early enough in, in, in enough detail. However, once they did realize they had a problem, yes, they did shut the, the, the area down. And it's much easier for an autocracy to do that than a democracy. We all know this. Yes. But that delay um, is why I suspect we'll find when we map this that different parts of the world already had COVID-19 before the Chinese even announced it. I suspect New York. I mean, what's happening in New York suggests to me that that virus has been in the community for a lot longer than was first thought. I think so, yeah. Well, it's interesting because back in January, when we first sort of got wind of this whole thing, I put a question because the Americans had just started um, testing people at airports flying in from certain yeah. places. And I put it to um, a, a, a medical specialist, why should we not be? Should, why should we not do that here? And he said, well, there's no reason to do it. There's no point to do it. And then I said, what about masks? No point in wearing masks. You know, all of that has changed over yeah. time because it moves very quickly. But if you look at what's happening in America now, the fact that they were testing people back then doesn't appear to have made any difference. Well, I don't, it depends what they were testing. If they were just randomly testing people's temperature at the airport... It's, I, I don't know. Without knowing the details of what they were actually testing, it's difficult to make a judgment. Right. But look, we, we, it, it, with all viral infections, you, you contact trace. You know, there's, that's how you go about trying to contain it. Um, but this is unlike uh, anything we've ever seen, really, isn't it? Um, well, it's quite similar to the previous SARS. I mean, it's, 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 it's presenting in a different way. It seems to be more infectious. I mean, I'm saying seems every time yeah. because we're not, we're not in fully grip with the data here. We don't have the proper evidence. And that is in part because we're not testing enough. Right. I mean, this is why the German approach, I think, is absolutely spot on. You want information. You know, just keep checking. And if you go back and test the same person again in four months' time, then you can have some evidence of whether their immunity is, is, is building or weakening or whatever. I right. mean, there's a lot of evidence that we need to collect here. And I think we've been caught napping. And I just, it's such a pity because there were clearly people in government who recognised that pandemics were a threat and wanted to push through to try to improve our response to it when it came. Because yes. we knew it was coming, and I suspect we're going to be encountering others in the future, and we just need to just up our game. I just want better governance. Yes. It's not really a party political point. It's about having people who can make the right judgment calls early enough so that you and I and everyone else is safe. Yeah, well, I think, you know what, Philip, I think I think I have reached a point in, in, in unfortunately, uh, covering this where, you know, we can't all be safe. That's the bottom line. And I mean, I've got a, a tweet here from a guy called Sean who says maybe the government listened to the World Health Organization in January who said it wasn't going to be a big problem. And there has been, there have been officials back in the sort of early yeah. part of this year who were not suggesting that we would ever be in this position. Well, I think there was, a, from what I can gather from sources that I have, there was internal debate within the WHO about the, how long it took to actually qualify the term pandemic yes. and to use the word. And I think that there was a, because of the previous, I think, don't quote me, it was to do with the way swine flu was called a pandemic earlier and it was retrospectively thought to have been too soon to call yes. it. So there was institutionally a bit of a concern about calling it a pandemic. Yeah. Look, there I mean, the bottom line here, surely, as well, is that China has to take an awful lot of the brunt of the criticism here about not only uh, emanating from there, but also what they did to contain it, which they didn't, you know, they didn't do enough of. I think that there is, I mean, I wrote about this in the Express about three weeks ago. I think, yes, you're right. I think that country has internal weakness, which is actually a global threat. And I, yes. think that that, I suspect that people in the, there are the people in that they probably know this. Okay, so I think that there's a requirement for us to globally reflect upon what has happened, and each country has a responsibility because maybe it was China this time. It might be another country next time from whence a virus comes. And it's so important in this connected world where we can all fly around the world and go to exotic places on holiday that there is a global response to this. Uh, it can't just be a British response or a French response or an American response. We all have to actually sit in a room and go, right, how are we going to manage this better in the future? Because I don't think we've managed it as well as we could have done 
here. I certainly, looking at America, I'm sure they're reflecting upon the, how they've managed it already. And I think we can do so much better as a species, Mike, you know, as humans all together on, the, on this planet to try to deal with this. And yes, some of that's to do with animal husbandry and food chain productions and everything else in China and elsewhere. Some of that's to do with the, 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 the sort of concentration, urban concentration and, and people living in close proximity to live animal markets. All of this is true, but the response has to be international, has to be global. It can't be country by country because it won't work that way. OK. Philip Lee, thank you very much indeed. Dr Philip Lee, a former Justice Minister, a former Lib Dem MP, of course, as well as a former Tory MP. That was how uh, he ended his career at the House of Commons. Um, I think he's being a little bit unfair on the government. I think the government has done what it can do. And I think, as I said, the main uh, sort of uh, focus of our ire should be China, because it's China that gave this to us. It's the Chinese government that lied about the numbers. It's the Chinese government that didn't contain it properly. And it's the Chinese government that has basically infected the rest of the world. I'm afraid there's no doubting that. Uh, I don't think the government here could have done much else, really. You may have a different view. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is now time for our daily homeschooling section, which is proving to be very popular. So if you haven't done it yet, do please get your children and put them around the radio in whichever way they wish to do it, whether they wish to be sitting, standing, lying down, whatever they want, because uh, this is where we help you to educate the kids about what it is that they can do in all sorts of different ways. Yesterday we talked about uh, the bubonic plague and the last town in Derbyshire, Eam, uh, where the last victim of the bubonic plague died. Today... Uh, we're going to take a little more modern approach because we're going to talk to Stuart Winter, uh, columnist for The Express, a man who knows an awful lot uh, about a great many things, but particularly about twitching. Stuart, a very good afternoon to you. Good morning, Michael. Good afternoon. It's 12.30. Yeah, yeah. it is. Time flies when you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> it isn't when, it's not when you're in lockdown. <laughs> no, exactly right. Slowly, so but... so you're, in, you're in Luton in lockdown. How's it going? Yeah, it's not going too bad. I'm lucky. I live right on the edge of the Chiltern Hills. Okay. So literally when I go out for my um, government-approved walk, I can go up into the Chilterns. And uh, I've been out for a bird-watching walk this morning. Oh, good. Because it's spring, birds are slowly moving up from Africa and um, flowers are in bloom and butterflies are on the wing as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit colder than it should be, probably. I'm always quite surprised when I come out of the house in the morning how cold it really is. But but one of the things that you can do, which is free to do, and which you can take your kids along with you to do, uh, is, is bird watching, right? Very much so. I, I mean, going back, um, I don't think many listeners remember the cold winter of 1963 when I was sort of near to a grasshopper. But I remember being stuck indoors for, for weeks on end and... That's how I got into nature. I was looking out into the snowy window, out from the window into the snows, and watching the birds that were sort of seeking food in the garden. And I've been a bird watcher ever since. So you know, it's coming up to almost sixty years. Okay. And do you, when you do it, is, 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 do you need anything in particular? You know, in terms of like a, a pair of binoculars, do you need? Is that required, or, or do you not have to do all that? I think doing it from your garden. I mean, gardens are such a rich resource of wildlife. It's incredible. And there's a couple of reports. That, uh, there's a big report coming out towards the end of the week from the, the RSPB on their big garden bird watch. And a charity, um, the British Trust for Ornithology, are going to open up their garden bird watch, which is a citizen science project, which is a, usually a paid-for project for people to join. But they're going to open it up to you know, people to actually engage in it themselves. And to go back to answer to your question, all you need to do is look out your garden. You don't even need a garden. As long as you can, you know, look out, you'll be amazed at the birds that are flying through and flying over, um, you know, from goals and kites where I am. Um, and, you know, looking out into my garden now, I've, I've actually got a couple of um, long-tailed tits, which are sort of delightful little birds that are um, looking at one of the... Um, I've got a hedgerow at the back of the garden. They're looking in there to build their nest. Right. And so when you said birds are coming up from Africa already at this, at this time of the year, are they going somewhere else? Are they passing no, they're, through? they're arriving here. They're actually sort of landing down and they're bursting into song. And I, mean, I was watching a um, re news report last night on the coronavirus and um, there was a government minister talking and you could hear a chiff-chaff, which is a, a bird that only comes to the UK in summer, singing in the background. And so, I mean, everyone knows about swallows arriving here and the old adage about one swallow doesn't yes. make a summer. They'll be here in the next couple of weeks. Yes, well, I mean, it's fascinating for a lot of people as well who 
perhaps until they've, they've listened to this, have never really thought about what you could see if you look out the window, you know, because so many people look out the window and don't see anything. No, I mean, I think on, you know, the, the average gardener, and I know there's much probably not, no such thing as an average garden, but if you've got something, you know, the size of, say, a penalty box in a, for a football um, pitch, you'd be amazed, wherever you are in the country, of what that will attract. Um, you know, I mean, it's quite easy to get a tally of 20 different species. And then, you know, you can stretch it out then to butterflies and bees. There's a few butterflies on the wing at the moment. Right. The, a yellow one called the brimstone, which was the original butter-coloured fly. That's where the, the name Oh, really? OK. Yeah. And do you keep a list of the things that you've seen, rather like... I, mean, I don't mean this in, in any way to be... Um, you know, uh, not respectful, but like train spotters can mark down the numbers of the trains that they see. Do you mark down the birds that you see? I, I think there are a lot of birders who actually do that, and they they, they call it their life list, and they okay. treasure it as much as they you know, much probably treasure their children. Or, mm. But um, you you don't need to. I mean, it's it's great system science to actually sort of tally something and just watch how the seasons change and things like that. And going back to that BTO Garden Bird Watch, that is that citizen science project that is very useful if people have sent um, have tallied things and sent it over so that scientists can make out um, conservation measures yeah. um, to come because one of the things i mean i haven't been down to sussex unfortunately for a couple of weeks because it's a bit too far away for the traveling uh, restrictions that we currently are living under but i've seen hawks quite a lot of hawks down there kestrels i've seen we had a woodpecker in the garden on quite a regular basis which i was quite surprised about so, I mean, you know, we'll send you a junior spotter's badge. Thank but you. That, that's exactly what's going on. I mean, kites have been reintroduced into the English countryside. They used to be um, sort of common, common in medieval England. Um, that they're now sort of looking at um, pairing up to build their nests and raise young. So, you know, they're a common feature in the sky. Buzzards as well, and as you say, kestrels. And if you're lucky, you may even see a sparrowhawk dash through. Right. And so, I mean, is there a good resource for people, if you're a parent listening to this and you've got children sitting around wondering how they go about the beginning of this, because they might not be able to recognise necessarily a kite um, or a long-tailed tit or, or, or a kestrel. So is there a, is there a good resource Very much so. I mean, if, if they log on to uh, BTO, bto.org, and um, just, you know, scout round that um, on the internet there, they'll see lots of information about different types of birds. And something that the, the BTO are actually engaged in at the moment is sort of um, stretching out their knowledge to make it more um, user-friendly. So yes. that's a great... A great opportunity. And, I mean, you, you can get all manner of books on Amazon. Um, you know, from I, I started off with the Observer's Book of Birds back okay. in the 1960s. But there's some fantastic um, field guides out there at the moment. Just type in garden birds and you'll be surprised of what they'll see. But make sure they get a, um, a British garden birds rather than an American garden yes. birds. Because Americans are really into it as well. Yes, of course. I've got a couple of tweets from people saying that, uh, funnily enough, saying tweet now seems ridiculous while we're talking about birds, but um, <laughs> saying that there's a couple of apps that you can get. One's called BirdNet. Do you know about that? You very much know. There's BirdNet and a really, really good one. I mean, there's the, uh, the Collins Field Guide, which you can actually um, download, and that's... That's an incredible resource. I mean, I think every bird watcher uses it, and it's got bird songs on there as well, so you can actually okay. um, you know, listen to something and then play it back and say, oh, yeah, that's what I've just heard. And is there any merit, and even, say, for example, if you're living in a flat, perhaps, uh, but you've got maybe a bit of outdoor space, can you put... Is it a good idea to put bird food out in some way, shape or form? Because I that think will attract you them. have to be careful in flats. I know that feral pigeons aren't always everybody's cup of tea. Yes, that's um, true. I mean, feeding birds is important, but... Um, I think that, you know, from a, if you're living in a high-rise, you may have to sort of speak to the neighbours first of all, yes. perhaps even speak to the council. But as far as feeding birds, if you have got a garden, it's an important resource all through the year. They're, they're, um, birds will make use of it. I mean, I, as I'm looking out, I've got sort of four, four feeders spread across the garden, and um, there's a robin on one, and I've mentioned the long-tailed tits. And yes. Sparrows are knocking around as well. And I've seen in various pet shops that they have different types of bird food for different types of birds. So what's the best one if you just kind I, of I think gener okay, something that, generally? I mean, unfortunately, garden centres are shut at the moment. But I think if you go online and look for a wild bird food, uh, make sure it is for wild birds. Um, if you get ones that are sort of no mess so that, um, that you're not left with all the husks and things like yes. that. And you don't want ones that are sort of going to germinate. If they, I mean, the birds sometimes you know knock food seeds down, and they can grow up under the um, under the bird feeders, and you get all sorts of weeds. Yeah. There. Okay. 
And as far as if you're if you're sort of going out and about, are there are there do's and don'ts places that you should go which are best? I mean, obviously people are a bit restricted more than they would be normally at the moment. But well, very much so. Lots of bird reserves are shut down at the moment. Um, I mean, hopefully, when once the lockdown is. Um is a part of history, then you know, they, they will open up and you'll find lots of nature reserves and um, we, whether they are run by the local wildlife trusts or the, um, the Natural England, the government's agency or the RSPB, certainly go for them. But I, th- I, you know, I, I think anyone walking out for sort of 15 minutes, whether you're in the centre of London or whether you're up in the highlands of Scotland, you'll be surprised, you know, that you'll see. I mean, the adage is, is you know, with lockdown, don't stop looking up or looking out. Right. I've got an interesting uh, question for you, actually, because my sister was once attacked by a bird up in Scotland, um, and it was a bird. I, I can't remember um, how she described. It. I think she found out what it was, but I'm just going to ask you. It had very large feet. It was kind of like a bit like a hawk, and it was obviously a bird that had. Um, its its nest on the cliffs because they were they were sort of walking along the top of some cliffs. Her and my father, and because the bird obviously got agitated because she must have been going a bit closer to the to the nest and so it kept sort of swooping down and hitting her on the head with its feet. Oh right? wow, yeah, trying I mean, to knock her they're, over. There are birds called skewers. That That's what it was. Yeah, there you go. That's what it was. Yeah, I mean they are they are really really feisty. Um, they're big, quite big as well. Birds. Oh yeah, I mean, you're, you're, people have owned about a um, you know a gold sort of trying to grab their chips in a seaside resort. Um, I mean, these birds actually rob gulls of their food. Yes. It's sort of, one of their um, food strategies. Right. Yeah, a bit of a sort of um, a bit of a vulture, if you like. But there we exactly. are. So, what did you say is going on this weekend? Just remind us and see if people can get in, yeah, involved. Yeah, I with mean, what I'd love to invite all your listeners to, um, to an event that's being staged on Sunday. It's been organised by www.birdforum.net, which is uh, Bird Forum is the world's biggest online birding community with okay. um, thousands of members all around the world. And they joined forces with Chris Packham, who set up the Self-Isolation Bird Club. Okay. And the idea is just for people to look out their windows or on their walks and perhaps draw a, you know, draw a list of birds they see. Or if they get photographs, just send it to that um, website or to um, the um, Self-Isolation Bird Club feeds on Twitter and Facebook. And just, you know, if, metaphorically, everyone linking hands so that they can delight in the joys of birds and nature. Tremendous. Great stuff. Well, Stuart, thank you very much indeed for that little homeschooling section. Stuart Winter there, columnist with The Express, uh, bird watcher extraordinaire. Uh, do get uh, hold of some of those apps and do get some of those books. Have a look online. It's, it's an easy thing to do and it's quite educational for children to find out about the birds that they have sw- uh, living around them. I think it's really interesting. So yet another very successful uh, bit of homeschooling there. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll have some more for you tomorrow on another subject uh, which will be revealed Uh, later on. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.